again to pull out those message notes and follow along. Second Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with verse 3. This is the particular passage that we have on the front of our bulletin this morning. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. And Can we pray uh, one more time, please? Lord, I'm asking this morning that you'd help me to share your word and make it applicable to our lives where the rubber meets the road this uh, March. Can't believe it. Already March of 2013. Two days, two Sundays before Christmas. Uh, Easter. <laughs> In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come on, laugh. Just going to let it out. That's what I get. That's what I get for going to men's breakfast at 6:30 in the morning. Oh my goodness. One time years ago, it was uh Easter Sunday morning and we had a huge crowd for a little church. We pastored this little home mission church and we had a big old crowd of people for Easter. We had uh breakfast that early that morning and and I was exhausted because we had sunrise service, we had breakfast, then we had Sunday school, and then we finally had a morning worship. And so right before I preached, I stood up there and I said, Oh Lord, thank you for this gathering and we ask that you bless this food in Jesus' name. I think the fresh hours were there. And later on someone said, Well why do you say, you know, bless this Spiritual food. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. Did you hear the particular story about the fellow, the fellow that was a Protestant? There was this fellow that was a Protestant, and he was uh, he lived in a large Catholic neighborhood, all Catholics, and he was the only Protestant there. And uh, every Friday during Lent, when all the Catholics were having cold fish, this guy was heating up his barbecue and he was having steak. And the Catholics got tired of it. They got tired of the temptation. And finally they said, we've got to do something. We've got to convert this guy. So they worked in this guy, they worked in this guy, and they finally converted him to Catholicism. And he, so he finally agreed, and, and the priest sprinkled water over him, and he said, uh, he said, you were born a Baptist, you were raised a Baptist, but now you are a Catholic. Now you're a Catholic. And so next year, on the first Friday in Lent, his Catholic neighbors smelt the same smell in the air. They smelt the same barbecue smell. And they came over to the backyard where he was at, where he was barbecuing, to investigate. And they saw him, and they heard him sprinkling water over his steak, <laughs> saying, saying, <laughs> you, you were born a cow, you were raised a cow, but now you're a fish. <laughs> I, 
<laughs> real transformation. Real transformation is more than just saying a few words. It involves more than just saying a few words. Uh, let me quickly review where we've been. We've been talking uh, last couple of weeks about Romans chapter 6. And we've been saying that the Apostle Paul has indicated that when we give ourselves completely to Jesus Christ, uh, that we can be forgiven of our sins and, and we can be free from the penalty of sin and then we can also be free from the power of sin. He uses that terminology that the carnal nature has been rendered powerless. It's been altered. It's, it's been changed. Not eradicated, but changed. And it's been altered. And that means we have the power uh, through God's strength not to give in to willful sin. And we can live lengthy periods in our lives living a victorious Christian life. It doesn't mean that we're going to have perfection in the sense that we never ever will sin again, but that we have the power to live a victorious Christian life, especially we don't have to give in to habitual sin. 1 Corinthians 10.13 becomes a reality in our life and we have the power to choose the way of escape. When we're tempted, we can choose the way of escape because of what Christ has done in our lives. Now, if this is true, if Christ has done this for us in our lives, if there's real transformation that takes place, then the inevitable question comes along and, and the question that I've asked myself is, if that's true, then why do people still uh, willfully sin at times? Why do people willfully sin? And um, first of all, I want to I suggest to you, I want to say to you that maybe we don't sin as much as we think we do. Maybe we don't sin as much as we think we do because perhaps our definition of sin is wrong. You see, there are a lot of uh, churches and there are a lot of uh, different groups out there that say that you have to sin in thought, word, or deed every single day of your life. But I don't see that in Scripture. I think a better definition of sin is a willful transgression against a known law of God. In other words, you know that you're willfully violating scriptural principle. You know that. And you have a say in that because God has given you the power to choose to sin or not to sin. It's not a mistake. It's not a personality flaw. It's not, it's not any of that that some people say that it might be. Case in point. Do you remember the story I told at the beginning of last summer about the little girl that made tea for her mother? Do you remember that story? There was a little girl that made tea for her mother, and she came in because her mother was sick, and she brought this cup of tea in, and she said, Mommy, I made tea for you. And her mother was delighted. She was elated. And she said, oh, honey, I didn't know that you knew how to make tea. And she said, yes, mommy, I've watched you make the tea. And their mother said, well, honey, how did you strain the tea? And she said, Mom, Mommy, I couldn't find the tea strainer, so I used the fly swatter. <laughs> and she said, her mother said, you what? And she said, Mommy, don't worry. I didn't use the new fly swatter. I used the old one. <laughs> and so in this particular case, in this particular situation, we have a little girl. Her motive was right. Her motive was right, but the follow-through wasn't perfect. And so, so the, the Lord looks at our heart. He looks at our motive. And so some of the things that we say that are sin really probably are not sin. They're just mistakes. Our motive may be right, but we don't have perfect performance and we don't have perfect follow-through. Now, the other thing that we need to look at and the other thing that may be of a concern is, number two, 
sin can also occur, not necessarily because the carnal nature has not been rendered powerless, but because, because our minds need to be renewed. Our minds need to be, re- be, need to be renewed. We can get, still get in trouble, not necessarily because of the carnal nature, but because our minds were trained under the old nature. God has given us a new nature, but the Bible says it's our responsibilities to renew our mind. Now let's pretend that we are in the Army or we're in the Marine Corps. Uh, David Johns this morning talked about being out in 29 Palms. You ever been out to 29 Palms? The only thing that lives out there are scorpions and snakes. It's a desolate place. It's a hot place. And um, so there are those of us who have been in the Marine Corps, perhaps we're in the Army, and those of us who have been in any type of military service, you know, you know that some of your sergeants are literally terrible, awful. For two years, let's say, that we had a sergeant, and they were the meanest cuss around, that we had to walk on eggshells, Every time we were around this sergeant, we were waiting, waiting for him to take our heads off, so to speak. Now, at the end of two years, we get a new sergeant, a brand new sergeant. At first, we tiptoe around him, and we're waiting for him to take our heads off. But we finally realize that this particular sergeant is different. He is different. What's going on? We have to recondition ourselves to the new Sarge, our thoughts, our reactions, our emotional patterns have to change. And here's the point I'm trying to make. For many of us, the old carnal nature perhaps is rendered powerless, but the conditioning of his presence is still in our minds. You're not walking in the flesh, so to speak, but instead choosing to walk according to the old patterns of the flesh ingrained in our minds. It perhaps is not so much the heart as the mind. Now we have to renew our minds. And we see scriptural support for this in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And this is what it says, and I'm, this is my paraphrase. But in scripture, in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, it says, to present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto God. Do not... Be conformed to this world, to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed any longer to the old patterns of thinking, the old ways of reaction. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Bible has a lot to say about the renewing of the mind. A lot to say about what this, uh, along these particular lines in this subject. Here are three facts about the mind Three facts about the mind. Number one, notice, we become what we think. Proverbs 23, 7 indicates that we become what we think. Somebody has said, sow a thought and reap a behavior. Sow a behavior and reap a lifestyle. Sow a behavior and reap a lifestyle. And since the mind is one of the keys to living a victorious Christian life, the enemy of our souls has made the human mind the bullseye of his target. What are you talking about? Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 11. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes that we are involved in a spiritual warfare. 
And right away he says, be aware of Satan's schemes. Be aware of Satan's schemes. The Amplified Version says, be aware of the strategies of the devil. The English word for strategy is methods. And Satan's primary methodology has to do with the mind. Well-thought strategies, time-honored and effective. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says, there is a war happening in the invisible realm. And it's not against flesh and blood. It's not like we're having a hand-to-hand combat. It's a spiritual warfare. So fact number two, Satan plays mind games with us, and unless we're clued in, he is going to win. Fact number three, when you become a Christian, when you become a Christian, Christ's spirit penetrates the darkness of your mind. When you become a Christian, Christ's spirit penetrates the the darkness of the mind. I want you to turn over with me. Keep your finger here at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and turn over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and let's look at verses 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And I want you to notice what Paul writes here. And he says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, talking about Satan, the small God of this age, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, what's happening here? What's Paul talking about? He is literally saying that we are involved in the spiritual realm, in the spiritual warfare, And that all those people that you know that do not know Jesus Christ and all those individuals who are blinded to the gospel, it is literally, literally, they have blinders over their eyes. He says it's like they have these spiritual cataracts over their eyes to the person of Jesus Christ. And and old Snaggletooth loves to keep those blinders on people's eyes. And all of a sudden, when you commit yourself to Jesus Christ, the spiritual cataracts fall off of your eyes and all of a sudden there is light that enters into this dark realm, including our mind. Including our mind. There's a light that comes in. This is why Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, Again, it is not physical combat. Everything in this passage describes a battle for the mind. Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So, fact number four is this. Becoming a Christian, in becoming a Christian, there still is a battle for the mind. There still is a battle for the mind. Christ's light penetrates the darkness of our mind, but there still is a battle for the mind. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 5, the Apostle Paul says, again, that these weapons are not of the flesh, but are, are divine and powerful, destroying fortresses and speculations and every lofty thought raised up against the knowledge of God, 
Therefore, he says, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, everything in this particular passage of Scripture de- uh, describes the battle for the mind. And in this phraseology and in this uh, illustration that Paul uses, he says the mind is like this. He says the mind is like a city with a fortress all the way around it. Our minds are like a city with a fortress all the way around it. And all of a sudden, Jesus Christ comes in, and you might want to say he breaches the wall, and there is light that is shown there. But the enemy doesn't want to give up territory. And I want you to note that to overcome the enemy in this particular area, three things have to happen. The city with the walls around it, using that analogy, first of all, the walls have to be penetrated or the walls have to be scaled. The walls have to be penetrated or the walls have to be scaled. We've all seen those movies where uh, there was a a wall city uh, around the uh, circumference of a major city and how the enemy comes up and they put their ladders against the wall and they're shooting arrows down at them and then they're throwing oil over at them and then they dump the uh, fire down there and they're trying to prevent the people from coming in. And number two, there were big towers. We're talking about if you're going to capture a city, you had to get through the walls. And there were big towers in each corner. So if it was a rectangle shape, there would be four towers. And in those particular towers were people who were captains, or you might want to say generals or whatever, and they were directing the people on the top of the wall to fight the enemy. And number three, men of military strategy had to be captured. In other words, the brains behind the operation. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we have this principle illustration. It's not happening in the physical realm, but it's happening in our mind. And the Apostle Paul is saying, our mind is like a city with a walled with a walled fortress around it. A walled fortress around it. Did you know that in the Old Testament, when we read about the city of Jericho, it had walls that were 5 to 6 feet thick and 12 to 15 feet in height. And did you know that um, Nebuchadnezzar, when he ruled Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, there was a walled a wall around that city that was 40 miles in circumference all the way around. Did you know that the Great Wall of China is so long and so big that you can see it from outer space? And so ancient people are people in the New Testament when they heard that our mind is like a city and that there is this wall fortress around that they could relate to this particular illustration. Not so much for us today. Now, Satan doesn't like to give up that territory that easy, his stronghold in this walled fortress in our minds. Specifically, in these verses, Paul says, for the destruction of fortresses and the destroying of speculations. What are speculations? Speculations represent reasonings and thought patterns, traditional habits of thinking built in by the enemy for many, many years. And do you remember that particular verse we got through reading that says, destroying every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. These lofty things are mental blocks 
often that we've erected against biblical truth, spiritual viewpoints, when we're under pressure, under attack, undergoing a test, when we're doing without, persecuted, maligned, criticized, or done wrong, we're prompted to go back to these carnal habits of wrong thinking. Everything from looking out for number one, whatever makes you happy, you deserve it, screw guilt, he who dies with the most toys wins, everybody's doing it, there are no absolutes, I'm absolutely sure, to I can't live without, I need this to cope, I'm worthless, I'm a nobody, I can't and won't forgive, I'm helpless, I'm hopeless, I'm stupid, I can't do it, it is impossible, and a thousand more wrong biblical thoughts and ideas and philosophies. Did you hear the particular story? Did you hear the story about the lady for years who practically every single night she thought she heard a burglar in the house? And at least once a week, she would send her husband down to see if there was a burglar or anybody in the house. And so he would go downstairs and he would check it all out and he would come up. And one particular night, she thought that she heard some noise. Honey, go down and check. I hear somebody downstairs in our kitchen. He got up routinely like he had done a thousand times before. But this time, when he walked downstairs, he was staring down the barrel of a gun. He was staring down the barrel of a gun. And his eyes got really big. And the burglar said, don't make a sound. Collect all of your valuables. Collect all of your valuables. And so he gathered up all the values and he gave it to the burglar. And the burglar was ready to make it out the door and run off when all of a sudden the man said, wait a minute. You cannot go yet. You got to come up and meet my wife. She's been expecting you for 30 years. This is an example of a thought pattern, an example of what 2 Timothy says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and a sound mind. I'm expecting a disaster. I'm expecting a burglar. I'm expecting someone to break into my house. I'm expecting this to happen. I don't think so. Instead, we ought to be saying that God's our protector. He's the one that's going to comfort us. He's going to, the one that's going to protect us. He's the one that's going to go before us. No weapon formed will be able to touch us. And so, old Satan doesn't like to give up these speculations and these things, and he likes to keep this territory there, even though Christ's light shines in in those particular areas. And often we react to certain situations and we need to wreak program we need to think different thoughts and convince ourselves that that's a lie if it's a lie from the pit of hell itself it's a real problem it's a real problem if you have any type of abusive home experience been raised in home of a drug or alcohol or any type of neglect major loss or divorce or loss of a loved one, it's it's difficult at times to reprogram your mind. It's a constant ongoing battle 
but it's one that you must, you must fight. You must fight. You must take every thought captive. Now we said that our minds, Martin Luther said that our mind, the great reformer, is, you know, we have all of these thoughts that come in and all of these birds that fly over and want to land in our head. And there's nothing wrong with having those initial thoughts, but we don't want those birds to build a nest in our hair. We don't want those thoughts. We want to challenge those thoughts. We want to take those thoughts captive, the Bible says, to the obedience of Christ. And Jesus said, I've come to give you life, abundant life. But the Bible says, oh, snag the tooth has come to kill and maim and destroy. Now, how do you correct these patterns of thinking? You take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. How? Someone might say, first, we need to replace. We need to replace the old thought patterns with new ones. We need to replace the old thought patterns with new ones by memorizing Scripture and by meditating on God's Word. And the best place I begin, I, I, I know to begin this mental cleansing is through Scripture memorization, God's Word. Um, for example, um, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. All discipline for the moment doesn't seem joyful, yet sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 119, verses 9-11, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has seized you except what is common man. And God is faithful, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Now, I find it very, very interesting that in Scripture, often in the Old Testament, that whenever a, a person was often named after their character. A person was named after their character. For example, Jacob, translated in Hebrew, literally means usurper, our cheater, our liar. And yet, when Jacob was wrestling the angel. Do you remember that account? Jacob was wrestling this angel all night, and he said, bless me, and I won't, I won't let you go. Bless me, bless me, bless me. And the angel blessed him and said, your name is Jerusalem. Prince, not usurper any longer. And a uh, uh, hundred and eighty degrees turnaround. And so we're talking about our thought life. We're talking about how we react. And the Bible says, and the Bible indicates, and, and I believe that old thought patterns, uh, you want to replace them by memorizing God's Word and meditating on God's Word. Second, you need to reprogram the old thought pattern with new ones by personalizing. It's called personalizing. You put yourself in the pages of Scripture. In other words, you use I, me, mine, my as, as personal pronouns. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. Listen to this. This is putting your, your personal pronouns in there. For though I, I walk in the flesh, I do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of my warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. I am destroying speculations and every lofty thought raised up against the knowledge of God. I am taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 
And and this is this is personalizing scripture. This is putting yourself into those particular accounts. And number three, we need to remove the old thought patterns. We need to remove these old thought patterns by analyzing the situations that we find ourselves in. Instead of continuing to tell yourself, you're little more than a helpless victim, take charge. As soon as you catch yourself responding negatively, negatively or defensively, think and analyze the situation. If you're a student, do a little analysis of your, at your school. If you're in business or at the workplace, and, and, and we're, by the way, they're often a bunch of turkeys, Wherever you work at, they're often there. Analyze the circumstances with the understanding that you and they will never be in step, marching to the same cadence. Then ask yourself a few tough questions. Why am I getting so hot? And why am I getting so bothered? Is there something I'm afraid of? Or maybe am I reacting negatively because I have a reason or simply because I formed a bad habit of responding and reacting in a certain way? I want to close and I want to conclude by sharing with you uh, from a Hallmark Hall of Fame movie. How many of you have ever watched The Magic of Ordinary Days? Some of you have seen that movie. If you haven't, you're missing out on a real treat. And I would invite you to uh, rent that movie. In this particular story, in this particular story, there's a young lady by the name of Livy, and she grew up in a parsonage. She grew up in a Lutheran pastor's home, but unfortunately, she's made some bad decisions and choices. Her mother died, and she ended up finding herself in comfort in a in a man's arms, and she became pregnant out of wedlock. And this is, in the, uh, this is in the 40s. And her father, being a stern Lutheran pastor, found out that there was a, another Lutheran congregation many miles away in a farming community, La Junta, Colorado. She grew up in Colorado. And so her father does the Lutheran church network and finds out that there's a young farmer there that's single, and he would like to be married. And so they make this arrangement. She's pregnant. She's out of wedlock. She's made some bad decisions and choices. And this young farmer is willing to marry her in this particular condition. She comes from the city. She moves out into this rural area where there's not even a telephone in the house. And he told her as soon as she walked into the house that I just got indoor plumbing. And they don't know one another. They're strangers to one another. And so they go through this service and they're married. And she enters into this life, the farmer's wife, as a farmer's wife, in this remote farm. In the back of her mind, she doesn't plan on staying very long. And certainly doesn't plan on falling in love with this young farmer who's so different than she is. And she also can't believe that she made this decision and she allowed herself to get pregnant with this man who she found out later on that doesn't really care for her. And she has a difficult time 
forgiving herself. But Livy has never met a man like Ray Singleton. Ray is hardworking, he's kind, he's patient, he's full of faith, and he does everything to make Livy happy. He focuses on meeting her needs. He even checks out a book at the library, unknown to Livy, because it was written by a German archaeologist, and that was Livy's major in college. And that's what she did her dissertation on. And so he checks it out, and he reads the book, and he engages her in a conversation at a dinner table with other relatives around when everybody wants to talk about farming and they want to talk about crops. Ray brings up this particular subject. And Ray does all of these kind things for Livy. And one time, he's out in the garage area and he's singing a song and Livy comes in and she says what song are you singing and he says I'm singing a song that my father taught us as children and he learned it when he found out that my mother was pregnant with my older sister and I can't remember the words and I'm trying to get the tune and I'm trying to get the words of the song in my mind In, a, in one of the last scenes of this particular movie, her sister has said, you can come and live with me. You can have the baby here. You don't have to live out on this farm. <coughs> Livia is torn because she respects this young man who has married her. They've been living in separate bedrooms. And she is torn. She doesn't know what to do. And he says to her, he says, Livy, I know that you're having a hard time forgiving yourself. And I know that God can forgive you. But I want you to know, I fall in love with you. And he kisses her and he says, I want you to stay. When I saw that particular movie, it just remind me of the, uh, reminded me of the thought and idea. There is so much that the Bible has to say about who we are, about forgiveness, about grace, about forgiving ourselves, about not living under this guilt and this yoke of, of responding negatively to things in life. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray together.